This is the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast. I'm Damien Roos. In this episode, we're talking about headroom, a term that's used in a few different contexts. Today, I'm borrowing it from the automotive industry, and it's the reason I'm sitting in my car, sitting in the driver's seat to be exact. Headroom is used by the auto industry to measure how much a tall driver runs the risk of scraping their head on the roof of the car. The amount of excess space, vertical clearance, to accommodate a tall driver is called headroom, literally room for your head. In my car, from my head to the roof, uh, the space is about 25 centimeters or so. And it's this space in excess of my head height, which is theoretically wasted, but exists to accommodate possible taller drivers who may use the car. So headroom in this context implies that there is additional potential for growth before hitting a natural barrier, the roof of the car. And that's what we're talking about today. The implication that there is additional potential for growth before hitting a natural barrier. In the case of a cyclist, this is either physical or mental. In the case of an aspiring pro, natural barriers are more to do with professional cycling structure, i.e. teams, than the individual themselves. Today, we're going to explore this concept of headroom as it relates to cycling teams. And as it turns out, there is more to it than you might think. But even if you are not on a team or don't plan on getting a team, you don't want to miss this episode as there's also individual takeaways here to help you recognize your own headroom and use it to grow as a cyclist. So this concept of headroom covers a bunch of different scenarios in cycling. Beyond the obvious example of your cycling fitness, other examples include work and life outside of cycling, team rider fit, and race winning skills. Before we go any further though, I want you to meet someone. His name is John Herity. Hi, Damien. Hello, how's that? Yeah, that's better. Perfect. Yeah. So John's a former Olympic cyclist, British road race champion, former director of racing at British Cycling. He's also the person that gave me the idea about headroom as it relates to cycling. John uses it in his current role as the manager of the JLT Condor Continental Cycling Team. In this role, picking riders for the team is a big part in making sure that the team lives up to sponsor expectations, also known as gets results. To do this most effectively, he's worked out a clever way of finding what he calls diamonds in the making. And we also look for guys that have got what we call headroom. So if a rider's been getting results, young young kids that have been getting results, and then we, we make some inquiries about them. And when I say results, I'm talking domestically here, and be, you know people that uh, are only riding sort of uh, our you know junior you know junior races, and we find out that um, the kids working 40 hours a week in a, an engineering company, for example, and you know he's fitting his training around a full time job. Um, those are those are those are gems. Those are the those are the diamonds that you're looking for, if, if you like, or the diamonds in the making. Um, because if you can get the ones that are already working full time, they've already got some structure to their lives. They've already been, you know, having to you know turn up for work um, at a certain time every day. They're, they're by far the best ones to get hold of if you can get them. In other words, getting results is important, but it's only part of the picture. John likes riders that are getting results despite commitments off the bike. More specifically, some form of full-time work. As you may know, full-time work often means that a rider doesn't have time to give it their all, and they could, in theory, do a lot better if they didn't have to work. 
The clever bit is that the commitment it takes to hold down a full-time job and perform at a high level most likely translates into a solid work ethic. And if given the chance to ride full-time, could mean great results for the team. Now, this is a very specific sort of headroom that applies to the working cyclist. Another type of headroom that is super clever. For me, we looked at riders that were sick in particular, the ones that got uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, that sort of thing. While this may sound opportunistic, there's more to it. Because the the way the, the, the performance program has to work is that it's um, it's pretty brutal you know they're, they're looking for the they're looking for the best riders and they can't it's like almost like a military approach you know these are the parameters these are you know you do this you do that uh you can't do this you step outside and you're you know you're off the program sort of thing i believe that that is the correct thing to do for that program however you're going to lose a lot of you know good riders that way as well um, because not everyone develops in the at the at the same rate and uh, as a consequence, uh, we picked up um, two riders um, in the, in, over the, two or three riders actually over the, over the years that have been part of that program um, that we've uh, you know, tried to bring back to the um, you know, full potential sort of thing. We've got one at the moment that I think will do, um, Matthew Gibson. He's with us, and we've just taken on Jermaine Burton, who also was um, you know struggled with the structure that they had in place. So I like looking for those guys. John has a couple of guys right now that have struggled with the structure and regarding a disorder like chronic fatigue syndrome, which John has firsthand experience. I, as a rider myself, I had chronic fatigue syndrome and it's like, you just have to wait, you just have to sit it out and uh, it doesn't mean you're not going to you know, recover from it. So I've been looking for, we, we definitely look for those sort of guys. It's easy to understand why former riders on the UK's world-class performance program are valuable. These riders are groomed from a very early age to be successful cyclists. They were chosen after rigorous testing and went through a serious military approach, as John puts it. This was to build habits, routines and skills to develop what they will need to make the step up to international racing. This makes it more difficult as a young rider to compete for team positions. If you are going to apply for a team position though, there's one area that makes it very difficult to perform even if you have a lot of headroom in other areas, which is also the most pertinent advice he would give young cyclists. They pretty much have to be um... The skills acquisition aspect of it, if they have, if they do not address that at a very early age, then that for me uh, is now a massive stumbling block once they get to senior level. So, um, now, normally you would get most juniors would have those skills, but you do get a few that have come through that didn't have you know, di you know didn't have them. But I would say now for me, that is. The one thing that is almost impossible to teach um, and is a, a big stumbling block. So if you're, you know, if you've only got so much time to train and you, you're worried about not doing, a, you know, thinking a criterion is not a good idea or whatever, because I don't like crits because I'm not very good at them, do the crit. Learn the skill because the older you get, the more difficult it is to acquire that skill. What skill is he talking about? The skill to win a bike race. 
As a bit of a side note, there's a twist here, as the skills you need at world tour level are completely different than the ones you needed to get to that level. If they can actually get into the world tour, those skills become less of a, a limiting factor. Um, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, uh, obviously, they don't have to be able to descend. They don't have to, but they don't have to be descend with the best, for example. You know, as long as it's adequate. We, we, we've never had riders that are absolute, uh, you know, an, an absolute nightmare. But we've got guys that would be, you know, you know, a poor descenders, for example. And we, we can't, you know, really, really difficult to teach. Can't teach them. Yeah, that, that that's for me is the irony, to be honest. That, and that's one of the big differences now. Um, you, you, you have to win bike races when you're 18 and 19 to get onto the pro team. And once you're onto that pro team, you probably will ne potentially never win a bike race again for most of them. <laughs> so they've got all these skills about you know, how, to, how to win a bike race, but actually they'll probably never use them again once they, once they get to that level. This could explain why some of the top, top riders might skip over the dog-eat-dog -dog world of junior and European domestic racing but what's also interesting is that the skills may be number one on John's selection list, but it's not a complete deal breaker for an athlete with good numbers. I'm saying this because skills are not something you can teach or train so easily. It's more of a risk for John and it hasn't always worked out. Did you learn this by getting somebody on the team that had no skills? Yep. We've had a few like that and we, we will still pick them like that because it's that, you know, because the, the you know, what's changed, I say it's changed, but I remember doing lab tests back in 1978, 79. So we, we always started, sports science was already around, you know, way back then. Uh, and you've only got to look now at uh, what the Eastern Europeans were doing uh, behind the scenes as well with their testing and so on. And, okay. The, forget all the other chemical assisted side of it but they were already doing you know testing in labs and so on uh, you know back then so it's not that that aspect of it is not as new as people make out um it's still for me we will still take a rider that is has, has got fantastic test results in the hope that they will acquire the skills but we've got you know we've had a few riders over the years which um that's the it's a limiting factor what if you have the skills and the numbers, but it's the team? John was pretty firm in the wrong team for the wrong rider could really hurt a rider's progress if they fail to get on a world tour team and go to a European club team, for example. They immediately wanted to go to Europe. Uh, and for me, that was the biggest mistake a lot of them made. They immediately wanted to go to, they thought they'd failed because they've not been, uh, you know, uh, able to continue with the world-class performance program and they wanted to carry on and uh, immediately thought Europe was the best place to go. I, you know, it definitely wasn't. There's no pathway for them. They just, they, literally, they just race them. They go from race to race and initially it's great fun that the guys are racing, but they're, they're not coached. They're not, uh, they're not looked after. They're just stuck in the house and basically left to their own devices. And, Initially, it's a fantastic adventure for them. What about getting onto very legitimate teams? Well, sometimes the limiting factor is the team or a rider's role on the team compared to their strengths. This would mean that a rider has headroom to perform because they are being underutilized in their natural ability. John's new signing is a sprinter that is actually stepping back down from two years at pro continental level, and they both think that he'll be better for it. 
I want to make a note here that tragically between the interview with John and the recording of this episode, the cyclist we spoke about, Jason Lowndes, was struck by a car and killed while out training. I've left this part in the podcast to pay respect to Jason and how highly he was thought of in the cycling community. My condolences to everybody that knew him. Yeah, Jason Lowndes is a sign for us. So there's a, yeah, it's probably outside of your podcast now, but that's another rider that has uh, slipped through the net, went uh, immediately to a, a high level with uh, with Drapak and with uh, the Israeli Cycling Academy this year. So he's been at Pro Conti level already. And he's, um, if you like, he's coming back down to Conti level. Uh, interestingly, um, he does not see, and I don't see it as a backward step, it's just that uh, we need to, he needs to sort of, uh, you know, get back to winning bike races again. And he went up too soon, I think, uh, to pro Conti level mm. and was then used in the role of like workhorse for other other riders. As the team's got better, he's dropped down the pecking order, not because he's not, he, he has improved, but um, he's not been able to show what he's capable of as a result of him working for other riders. So um, he's going to come and ride for us next season as a, our main sprinter. And as a, you know, as a consequence of that, I'm, I'm, I fully expect him to get a lot of results and move back up fairly quickly, to be honest. So, um, but that's a guy, that's another one that we've been looking at, we looked at for six, seven months. We saw him, he's a, he's a guy from Bendigo, so we, we've known him, you know, and he, he sort of shot prominence very, very quickly within the Australian system. And then as... Um, you know, it was on this fantastic trajectory, but because of the way that the, the team he was with um, has developed, all, all of a sudden they want to go, you know, into the Giro. And as a consequence, they need to buy a type of rider that is capable of giving them instant success. He's been a victim, I think, of that, uh, of, that of, of their ambitions, if you like. Mm. And uh, we're, um, yeah, I'm really happy with that acquisition of him. Yeah, so I'm, I'm hoping for big things for Jason. Definitely a biggie and something that would be more common the higher you go in cycling. It would be great for a rider to get to show what they're capable of, especially if the rider is willing to drop down a level. But sometimes, headroom may be as simple as a bad team rider fit, and all the rider needs is a new team. One, I've only ever had one that uh, I've ever had to let go. I've only ever sacked one rider. I'm not going to tell you who it was, but um, and he's good. He's a good guy, but he just, um, yeah, he just didn't fit in with uh, my ethos, and, uh, and and as a result, uh, we 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 got rid by. But again, when I say got rid, we still paid him to the end of the year. I didn't want any sort of. Uh, uh, he just said, look, you're not, you know, we were getting towards the end of the season anyway. Um, I said we're still going to pay you, but you know, uh, you're not going to race anymore. You're more than welcome to race as a, an individual, you know, in our team kit. Um, for you know, in, in in races that we're not riding, but you know, you're not going to get selected for any more. Uh, was that a, a surprise for you? Uh, it was quite. Uh, yeah, I actually had to get angry to do it, and um, which was um, yeah. So it, it was a little. It was a surprise, yeah, because uh, I think we gave uh, we give people a, a very fair, um, a very very fair deal, and and this guy was uh, yeah. He was, um, yeah, he was running down the team to uh, to other riders in the changing rooms. And uh, yeah, in fairness, you know, everyone else thought he was a bit of an idiot, to be honest. So <laughs> it was, yeah, 
Yeah, it was huge well on it, to be honest. To be honest. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I will see riders out. They're giving the full season. There's no point. I, I can't see... Uh, I can't see the point. If it's a mistake, it's a mistake. It's a joint one. That's what I mean. Um, didn't, didn't work. Um, yeah, we've signed riders that weren't good enough, for sure. Which gets us to the final lesson here for anyone wanting to get onto a pro team at any level. You need to really try and understand where a team is in its development. Do they only take experienced riders because they have the budget? Or understanding the goals of the team. Do they need a sprinter or a climber because they're aiming for hilly stage race, for example? If there's one lesson that I personally want you to take away, it's this. There are no set rules in the path to being a pro. You might follow everything I say and still not make it. Or better, you might not follow any of this advice and still make it. And it's this last part that's possible. To give you the best example I can, here's a great anecdote that sums this up. You'll quickly recognize the guy John's talking about. I want to ask you about like your favorite rider, but I know it's like as a as a father picking your favorite child, like it's it's very difficult to pinpoint. So No, I've got one. I've got one. I've got one that probably a little anecdote for you that will probably uh potentially work. For me, Cavendish was my favourite rider. Yes, that Mark Cavendish. With 29 Tour de France stage wins and a World Road Race Championship, to seriously only name a few of his milestones. He, he never rode for my team uh, you know, at Conti level, but uh, he obviously rode for the national team. And it was when he was... Um, he was interviewed to join the program that Rod Ellingworth wrote, and I sat in on the meeting. It was definitely Rod and uh, a guy called Simon Lillerstone's uh, program. It was nothing to do with me. It was all, uh, I'm not trying to take any sort of uh, credit for their success with that group of riders. Um, I, I managed, they were the coaches, and Rod managed sometimes, and I managed them on occasions if Rod wasn't available while he was working with the rest of the group. So. Cav came in to be interviewed to uh, to join the academy, basically. So that f first boot camp, and um, it was still early days of the world class performance program. So there was lots of protocols in place. Everything was black and white. Um, you so there was a fitness index that Mark had to meet. Uh, you had to be available to well, all the riders, not just Mark, but everyone had to meet all these different uh, this set of criteria, if you like. And the senior management team had told uh, Rod and Simon that you know this is this had to be. It's black and white. You've you've got to select all these guys uh, through this process. So they were all interviewed and. Cav came in and he's, he was he was interviewed exactly like he is when he comes across on TV when things haven't gone too well for him. Something like this. Well, not so bad. Seriously, fuck off if you ask me about this. Fuck off. Where's Alessandro? Oh, oh, Ali. Can you get him away, please? You're just asking about Lance. Please get this guy away. He just wants to talk about Lance. No, you can't. Fuck off. So that surly sort of um, um, stance that he takes. Now, he went through everything. He wanted to be on the programme. He was working, what I saw, that he was working full-time in a bank. He was overweight. He did not meet the fitness index. He had to go into hospital, I think, on his tonsils out or some sort of minor operation, which meant he couldn't start on the on the given day. Uh, and he was, you know, he left the room uh, at the end of the interview. And Rod and Simon looked at each other 
and they were about to put a line through his name as not to, you know, not to choose him. And uh, I basically, I had to stop him and said, just hang on. Out of all the guys that we've interviewed in here, he's the only one that's won any bike riders. Everyone we've interviewed here has got great fitness index, but not one of them has won a bike race. The only one that's won a bike race is the one we just let out, go out the door. So I would suggest that it's not our, uh, it's our protocol that is wrong, not not the uh you know not that rider you know we need to make a case you need to go back to senior management and say uh turn the protocol on its head and basically say right we've got a rider here he's really really good but he doesn't meet any of the fitness in- index or uh, any of our protocol but imagine what he could do if we can get him to meet those fitness index. so in other words he's got that headroom we mentioned that right at the start of the podcast i think headroom he's got massive headroom but he's and he's already a winner Imagine how good he could be. So um, he got stay of execution. He was allowed on the program and he had, a, I think, either a three-month um, trial period um, where he had to get his weight down a little bit and uh, basically buckle down. But, yeah, so there's a rider that stayed on the program as a result of sort of challenging the, you know, the protocols that we, we, we put in place to choose these riders. Yeah, that sounds like a really great way to wrap up here because... You know, it sounds like you have a structure, you think about it, you, you sort of look for these sort of characteristics, but then someone can, can come along and not fit any of that, but just have something, whether it is winning mm. or whatever, and then, um, then they've got a chance. So what about your headroom? Anything obvious popped out during the episode? I say, don't wait for permission to go after your headroom. Take a look at your life and where your cycling fits in. Seriously evaluate your race winning skills and take a close look at the roles of the teams that you're looking at. And if you're going to be a good fit and go get after it. It's time once again for The Radar, the segment of the show where I talk about something that has popped up on my radar whether it's a product, study, or performance tip. And today we're looking at a systematic review called Cocoa Flavanol, Supplementation and Exercise, a systematic review, which I've renamed More Excuses to Eat Chocolate. Cocoa Flavanols have antioxidant and anti-inflammatory capacities and can improve vascular function. But what are Cocoa Flavanols? Well, First, you have to start with flavonoids. Flavonoids represent a diverse class of naturally occurring plant-based compounds that are found in a variety of fruits and vegetables. Flavanols are a distinct group of compounds within the flavonoid family. They are the predominant flavonoid found in tea, red wine, and cocoa. Cocoa flavanols are the unique blend of phytonutrients found only within the cocoa bean No other food on earth can match the unique blend of flavanols found in cocoa beans, which are the beans that are the basis of chocolate. It has recently been suggested that cocoa flavanols intake may improve exercise performance and recovery. And this systematic review aimed to evaluate the literature on the effects of cocoa flavanols intake on exercise performance and recovery and exercise induced changes in vascular function cognitive function, oxidative stress, inflammation, and metabolic parameters. Articles from two databases, PubMed and Web of Science, were searched for studies examining the combination of cocoa flavanols intake and exercise in humans. 
Articles were included if the exact amount of cocoa flavanols was mentioned, the methodical quality and level of biases of the 13 included studies were also assessed. The results show cocoa flavanols intake may improve vascular function, reduce exercise-induced oxidative stress, and alter fat and carbohydrate utilization during exercise, but without affecting exercise performance. Of course, it's early days and there is a strong need for future studies examining the synergetic effect of chronic cocoa flavanols intake and exercise training. And I don't have any specific protocols for you, but if you wanted to test this out somehow, supplements are starting to hit the market, but there tends to be no major differences in absorption between supplements and chocolate products. Also, more research is needed to determine the optimal dose. For now, though, the standard supplement dose for cocoa flavanols is between 500 and 1,000 milligrams a day taken with meals. Studies show that between 5 to 26 grams of dark chocolate contains 65 to up to 1,095 milligrams of flavanols. So the recommended amount is 25 to 40 grams of dark chocolate containing at least 85% cocoa. And this is about 200 calories of dark chocolate, a bit less than a standard candy bar. Milk and white chocolate do not contain enough cocoa for supplementation. So definitely, if you want to increase your chocolate, say it's for science and you're cycling, then this is going to give you a better excuse to do so. Overall, it is still a novel idea, but I'm cool with an experiment like this. If you're new to semi-pro cycling, check out the back catalogue of shows on all aspects of performance at semiprocycling.com or sign up for the weekly workout stack, the guide that shows you how to structure your training week and use your training time more effectively. And I'll also send you our best episodes straight to your inbox. This episode is dedicated to Jason Lowndes. I'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening.